That's a lot. Well, I mean, it's a big cup. That's been full of the menorah. There's seven of them. It's funny, no, 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 no. It looks like something about this big. Yeah. Okay. So they find the oil and they put in the menorah to light the menorah. Why do they use this oil? Because this is pure oil and they didn't have any pure oil. Why didn't they have pure oil? Because the Greeks went around contaminating the oil. Now, for those of you who do not know, the halacha is that all of the things in the temple must be pure. They have to have the status of ritual purity. Um, however, when pure things are not available because there's a general state of impurity amongst the Jewish people, then the laws of purity in the temple are suspended. So, for instance, if there are no pure kohanim to be found, then who do you use in the temple? An impure kohen. If there's no pure oil, then what do you use? Impure, impure oil. Okay, this is very important. Did they really need the pure oil to light the menorah? No. no. They went the way they found some, that's great, but by day two they could have just used the impure oil, right? So this whole thing is really just a bonus. What? So sad. What's that? The whole miracle is just like gone. Okay. <laughs> but miraculously, the oil lasted for eight days, which was enough time for them to go wherever they needed to go to and produce more oil for the menorah and get back. So they were able to use pure oil the entire time because the oil lasted for eight days. Good? Um, can I ask what, what does it mean that they were... They contaminated the oil. Did they put something in it? No, or the, did they just use it for uh, Abu So, um, I wanted to avoid this because I'm sure there's going to be follow-up questions. If a Gentile touches the oil, it becomes impure, regardless mm. of what they do with it. Mm. We're going to not go into that discussion. You can ask me questions and answers, but we're not going to do it. We'll just get mm-hmm. sidetracked. I don't fully really understand how that, like, you're allowed to use impure oil? If there's no pure oil available, yes. Is That's like... The rule? Yeah, that's a rule. <laughs> like right now, right now, people don't know this, but let's say we knew exactly where on the Temple Mount the altar is supposed to be. And let's say the government would not like throw us in jail and we wouldn't be causing a riot with the Arabs. Um, according to many halakhic authorities, we would, even though we're not all impure, we'd still have to go to the Temple Mount and build an altar and offer sacrifices. The only reason we don't do that is, A, we don't know exactly where the altar is supposed to be, and you have to do it in the right spot, and B, the government will throw you in jail. Um, but, yeah. What would happen if we put, like, if we just did that anyway and it wasn't in the right spot? It's like eating onion kipper. So, you know, not a good idea. <laughs> it's like, what happens if the brain surgeon cuts in the wrong spot? It's bad. You don't want to do that. Mm. <laughs> Better maybe not have the brain surgery at that point. Okay, um, so the question is, how did the oil last? So I'm going to give you several options, and you can pick one. Okay, um, all of these options are things that Hashem has done in other miracles. Okay. Option number one is that Hashem miraculously increased the quantity of the oil, so that on the second day they had more oil, the third day they had more oil. Right. Somehow, there's different ways of explaining how this could happen. Either when they poured the oil out, the jug stayed full, or the um, manure magically filled up again. But somehow, the quantity of the oil increased so that they actually had enough oil to burn for eight days. This is a miracle that Hashem did. Does anyone know where in the Tanakh and Scripture we have Hashem doing this kind of miracle, where He just increases the quantity of oil? Isha Right, the Isha Shinamis. There's the woman, the Shinamite woman, who was in debt. Her husband was dead. 
she, um, the creditors were going to take her sons away as slaves. She comes to Elisha the prophet, and he asks her what she has in her home, and she has a small a flask of oil. So he says, get as many empty containers as you can, close the house, and fill them up. And so out of that small flask, she pours into all the containers, they fill up, she uses the um, oil that is generated out of that to pay off her debts and lives off of the remainder. Right? And so the idea there is that Hashem does a miracle of miraculously increasing the amount of oil. Because you obviously cannot fill you know, hundreds of jugs from one tiny little flask. So that's one way Hashem could have done it. Right? That's the quantity way. Another way is he could have changed the quality of the oil. The oil could have just burned eight times slower. So the same amount of oil will last for eight times. Hashem has also done that miracle. Does anyone know where that miracle is mentioned? It's not mentioned in the Tanakh, but it's mentioned in the Medrash. If you learn Chumash with Rashi, you might be familiar with this. Where Hashem did a miracle like that. Increasing the quanti- the quality so the oil burns slower. Lasts longer. Nobody knows this one. You do know, but when I say it, you're like, oh, of course I know. Right. Um, Sarah when she lit her Shabbos candles, they They lasted to the next Shabbos, right? Now, that's not because she put a part. I could also do that, just make really big cups and put a lot of oil there, right? The miracle was she lit Shabbos candles were enough for one night and the oil burned for a whole week, right? So the miracle is that the oil just burned slower, right? So Hashem adjusted the quality of the oil in terms of its capacity for burning. Right? So that's another possibility is they put the, filled up the menorah, they lit the menorah, and they came back the next morning and it only burned an eighth down. And so if you do that, you end up having enough oil for eight days, right? You're not increasing the amount of oil, but you're increasing the, its ability to burn. Okay, now I can't do either of those things because I'm not Hashem, but those are two different options for the miracle. Yes? Option three. Option three is that the flame didn't actually burn the oil. Right. The flame was just kind of magically hovering over there. They lit the flame and just like just magically stayed there. But it wasn't really burning the oil. Now, um, when did Hashem do a miracle like that? Anyone know? Oh, the burning bush. The burning bush, which is just the wrong name because the whole point is the miracle is it wasn't burning, right? <laughs> right? It wasn't burning. It was the non-burning bush. But okay. Yes. So there you have a flame. Now, a flame requires um, combustion in order to exist, right? Once the combustion stops, the flame disappears, right? So a flame with no combustion is a miracle. But that's what happened with the, quote, burning bush, right? So maybe that's the same thing. They lit the menorah and it didn't, the oil just didn't burn and just hung out there. And so if it didn't burn, there's no surprise. There was oil for the next day and the next day and the next day. And then, so at some point, the oil just burns off and then that's it, Okay. So those are your three possibilities. Can anyone come up with a fourth possibility? What? Those are all miracles. Either the oil, because remember, the miracle is that the oil, which was enough for one day, lasted for eight days. So either the oil, there ended up being more oil, the oil burned for longer than it's normally able to, or the oil just wasn't being burned. Is there a, third, is there a fourth way Hashem could have done this miracle? Probably. Can you come up with one? Quick a second. You can have more than a second. I mean, I do have to leave at a certain point in time, but yeah, I'll give you like yeah, somewhere between one second and an hour. Okay. 
So which one of these three do you think is the most plausible? And why? It's an interesting quality. The quality, why? I don't know, it sounds like the most legit. I haven't heard them try to pour out. Because <laughs> it <laughs> seems like the, less mirac- the least miraculous, like, it seems least miraculous. Okay. It's also the most literal, right? Because then the, the same oil lasts for all eight days, right? Yeah. Um, there's a tiny problem. One of the halachas, and this is not something you can just get rid of, is that the menorah, like all temple vessels, have to be used at the full capacity. So if you were to fill the menorah and it didn't come up to the top of the, the cups with the oil, there was some space, you would have to fill it up with oil, right? So you come the second day, and the oil's burned down an eighth, right? Miraculously. What would they have to do? They'd have to top that off using which oil? The impure oil, right? So could they be doing the mitzvah with this pure oil and leave the cups partially full? No. In fact... Between the two, what's more important? To keep the, have the menorah full or to use the pure oil? Full. So that can't be. It has to be that every single day the cups of the menorah were full. So it's an, it can't be that Hashem adjusted the quality, the burn rate of the oil. That's the time. So either it's the amount of oil, Hashem increased the amount of oil there was, or, or, it's or just in burn. Right. So between those two options, anyone want to think of what's the most plausible option? It didn't burn. It didn't burn. That's a problem, though, because the mitzvah in the Torah is that you're supposed to put the oil in the menorah in order to ascend in flame. Now, if the oil isn't burning, the magically there's just a flame suspended over there. Are you actually fulfilling the mitzvah? The mitzvah is to kindle the menorah such that the oil ascends in flame. If it's ascending in flame, what's happening to the oil? How, how, how does oil turn into a flame, by the way? Anyone know? Combustion. Combustion. And if it's combusting, that's called burning, right? So the oil must have burned because that's the mitzvah, right? It would be a little bit weird for them to set up the whole menorah and then Hashem to do a magic show and put flames there, but they're not doing the mitzvah because the mitzvah is to kindle. kindle the oil so it ascends into flame. So the oil had to be burning. Otherwise, they're not, the whole thing is pointless. So by process of elimination, what was it? Quantity. Hashem just may increase the amount of oil. There's a problem with this as well. Shocking. Shocking. <laughs> Shocking that it doesn't work. What? We could have went in any order. I know, but it's so much more fun when it's interactive. Facts. <laughs> you cannot use any oil for the menorah. What kind of oil do you have to use? Anyone know? Olive oil. It has, it has to be like the first yeah. like non-miracle oil. It, well, so it, there's no halakha of non-miracle oil. There's a halakha which precludes miracle oil, which is that the oil has to be the oil that is produced... From, like a, the first press. from the first press, right? There's different type. There's there's nine. Halacha defines nine different grades of olive oil, and you need the top grade of olive oil for the menorah, which has to do with the t- best olives, and they have to be. There's different ways of making olive oil. Um, the 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 highest quality of oil is made by crushing the olives. Um, do you know how to? Do you, have anyone ever seen olive oil being made? What, the way you make olive oil is very simple. You get olive juice. Take olives and you make olive juice. And then, if you're in modern times and you only want to make a little bit and you're doing it for like kids and like a little show, you put in a centrifuge and it spins around. Uh, but if you're doing large amounts and time is not really of the essence, 
then you just put them in giant holes in the ground or vats and you let it settle and the oil floats to the top. And then you siphon off the oil. Okay. So the question is, how do you get that olive juice, which has some oil mixed into it? So you can crush the olives. You can grind the olives. There's different things you can do. Crushing the olives means you take the olives, you put like a basket of olives, and you put a heavy weight on top, and the weight crushes it and squeezes out some of the juice. How much are you getting from that? Not a lot. Not a lot. That's what you need to, and remember, that what's coming out of that is not oil. What's coming out of that is the juice which has oil in it. Then you need to collect a large amount of that, have it sit there for a while, so all of the um, um, water-soluble stuff floats, or settles at the bottom, and then the oil floats at the top, and then you siphon off the oil. How do you do that? In ancient times? Yeah, in ancient times. You just like have a giant big hole in the ground, and you have the oil run off into there, and you it, then you cover it and let it sit there, and you come back in a few days. I think it's actually how to do it now, too, because it's not so cost-effective to like, use machinery to do that when you're doing it on an industrial scale. Like, you, can, you can afford to wait a few days or a week, whatever it is. Um, now, if the oil was not produced in that method, is it kosher? Is it valid for the menorah? Not for the menorah. Not for the menorah. It's valid for other things. Why can't, like, if Hashem was creating a miracle, though, for there to be more of this, why can't it just be of the right kind? What do you mean the right kind? Like this first press, high quality. No, no, no. But here is the halacha. And the, is, is the Torah says it has to be oil that is of the same quality as the oil, or this is the oil you have to use? Or oil produced in it. Let me use a different example, so it's a little bit easier. Okay? When you want to do the mitzvah of matzah, yeah? Okay? If Hashem, and you didn't have any matzah, you're stuck in the middle of Siberia, and you have no matzah, and Hashem were to magically create matzah for you. Just literally, poof, ex nihilo, matzah would just show up right in front of you, Seder night. Can you use that matzah for the Seder? Yes. No. Why not? Because there's a rule that the matzah that you use for the mitzvah has to be made for the purpose of the Seder, of doing the mitzvah. Wait, 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 wait. And when we say it's made for that purpose, it means made by someone who's obligated to do the mitzvah. In other words, the matzah that you eat for the Seder has to be produced by a Jew who has obligated themselves to eat matzah for the sake of doing the mitzvah of matzah. That confers on it special mitzvah status, and that's the kind of matzah that you have to use in order to fulfill the mitzvah. Okay? If Hashem were to magically just create a mezuzah, could you use that mezuzah? Magically create tefillin. Because there are things where the Torah defines how the mitzvah item has to be produced, not merely what the result is. The Torah goes out of its way to tell us that the, the oil has to be the crushed oil in order, right? It's not just the quality. The Torah actually goes out of its way to say it. So, it, so that means if you have, if Hashem just were to produce the same quality of oil, some miraculous means, it's very good. It's very nice oil, right? And if, for instance, we had a business transaction where you wanted high quality oil, maybe it would make a difference, right? But you can't use that oil for the menorah. And if you can't use that oil for the menorah, we have a problem because that means that the oil that they used for the menorah had, right, this pure oil, the quantity did not miraculously increase because that, the increased amount of oil would not be valid for the menorah. It didn't burn any slower than normal because that wouldn't have helped. They would have had to top it off, right? And it had to burn because that's the mitzvah. So how did the oil last for eight days? 
saying a miracle doesn't help anything. Okay? So I wanted to teach you a little interesting point of Jewish philosophy. In Jewish philosophy, we differentiate between two kinds of things which are impossible. Things that are naturally impossible and things that are logically impossible. What's an example of something which is naturally impossible? Anyone can think of an example of something that's naturally impossible? A man carrying a child. A man carrying a child, like a man being pregnant. Yeah. Yes, a man being pregnant would be naturally impossible. Okay. I was going to go with like the splitting of the sea, but that's also great. Right. The Talmud has the example of a man nursing a child, so close enough. But yes. Yes. The Talmud tells a story of a man and his wife died and he had an infant and he was too poor to hire someone to nurse his child. And he prayed to God and then he was able to nurse his own child. I mean, scientifically, it's still possible. Um, yeah. How about, um, how about um, when... The, when the water in Egypt turned into blood. Yeah. What's something that's logically impossible? An apple floating in the air? Nope, that's not logically impossible. That's just naturally impossible. Example of something that would be logically impossible would be if you were to be riding a horse while simultaneously, you're also not riding the horse. Why? Because you're riding the horse. Because you're riding a horse, right? Now, something being logically impossible breaks down the very notion of what we tend to think of as true and false. If you're riding a horse, that's the same saying as you are not, not riding the horse. Right? Right? We have this basic notion, something is either it is that way or it is not that way. Now, I realize some things are messy, they have fuzzy categories, right? Like when you say, you know, like, like, this is really important, but like you have different notions of importance. I don't mean that, right? Or you say, for instance, the tiny is in my hand, or it's not in my hand, right? And it could be one, it could be the other, but it can't be both simultaneously, okay? Or other things, for instance, um, can you have a number which is both odd and even? Zero is even. It plays by all the even number rules. Um, What's the difference between naturally impossible and logically impossible? Naturally impossible means the world doesn't work that way. But conceptually, the world could work that way, it just doesn't. And that's the basic idea of a miracle, right? If you have so much oil in the flask, you only get so much oil out of the flask, right? But like, I don't know, God could just increase right the oil burns at a certain rate but god could change the qualities of these things right logically impossible is where intellect reason cannot accept that something is that way okay this is it cannot be the case that something is both true and false in the same sense in the same time in the same way it can't be the case that something is itself and the opposite of itself That is the classic position of many, many religious thinkers. That naturally impossible is what's impossible for creatures, but it's possible for God. And logically impossible is impossible also for God. 
So, can God make a number that's both odd and why even? Why is logically impossible and also impossible for God? What's that? I didn't say why. I just said that many many people think this way. Can God make a number that's also odd, that's both odd and even? Yes. Well, then what you're saying is that God is not limited by logic and reason. Have you thought through the ramifications of that? That means somebody could be simultaneously dead and alive. That means something could be simultaneously existent and non-existent, right? That means something could simultaneously be infinitely important and meaningless. It's a very weird way to live your life, right? Okay. In the temple, in the Holy of Holies, there was a room called, actually there was a room called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, the Kodesh Russian, was 20 amos, 20 cubits. A cubit is about this long. By 20. So it was a big room. In the middle of this room was the Aaron Habris, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was one and a half amos by two and a half amos. So about this big. And the Talmud tells us that on each side of the Ark, there was 10 amos of empty floor space. So if we do our math, from one side of the room to the other side of the room is how many amos? 20. From one side of the room to the ark is 10. The ark itself is, let's go with two and a half. And then again, 10. So 10 plus 10 plus two and a half equals? 20. 20. 20. No, 20. 20. 20. I borrowed the marker. The room is how big? How big is the room? 20. 20. In the middle is an ark. The ark is? One and a half by? Okay. And the Talmud tells us that these distances are 10. So that means, let's go this, that means 20. I borrowed the eraser. Let me erase this one. 22 and a half. That would mean that 20 equals 10. Plus two and a half plus ten, which means zero equals two and a half. Yes? No. What do you mean no? That doesn't make sense. I know it doesn't make sense, but you're the one who says God doesn't have to be logical. So that's like saying, like, yeah, God's not physical, like blah blah blah. But that's not physical. It's like, okay, yeah, God's not physical. God isn't logical. Yes. It gets worse, by the way. If you were to make the ark a little bit bigger than normal, this is the Yeah. If you were to make the ark bigger than normal, let's say three amos wide, are you doing the mitzvah of building the ark properly? No. Does any special miracle occur then? No. So then you would have, if you have an ark that's three, then you would have on each side how much? Eight point five. Plus 8.5, which would mean that, you know, math is normal. What if you made the arc too small? Would any miracle occur? So if you have 20, then you have 9 plus 2 for the arc plus nine, and that would also get me math is normal. 
So, that means because the arc is two and a half, that's why it's zero. But if you make the arc slightly bigger, then it will be bigger. If you make the arc slightly smaller, then it will be smaller. But if you make it just the right size, then it's no size at all. Does that make any sense? No. No. If you try to think about it a long time, is it going to make any more sense? No. Do you know why? Because this is called gibberish. Nonsense. It's meaningless. It's nonsensical. It's not logical. It cannot be understood. Because you made something the right size, that's why it's not the size you made it. That's why it has no size. So everyone's comfortable with the idea that God transcends logic? What? No. Well, I we think we've found a resident Hellenist. Because <laughs> the Greeks also are not okay with the idea of a God that doesn't transcend logic. <laughs> Were they? They're like, yes, Torah, Mitzvah's great. Let's just be reasonable about it. I mean, beliefs often come as a way of rationalizing our comfort zone, aren't they? <laughs> it, you know, it's a small, it's a small step from, it's a small step from sinning to being a heretic. You know, our, our sages say that the Jewish people only really adopted idolatries to justify their sinning. So you know, that's kind of what happens. We create our ideologies to make us comfortable with our comfort zone. So. Is it logically the case that if something has been um, consumed, it no longer exists? Yes. Not the material it's made of. No, no, that, no, the thing. Not the materials it's made of. Should we be more specific? Is it true that if something is dismantled into its component parts, it no longer exists as the cohesive whole it once was? Yes. Okay, that's what... So when you consume food... Right? The thing you consume doesn't exist. The parts that it was made of, they exist. Right? When you burn something, so that's why we use the same word consuming, right? what happens when you burn something? The chemicals break apart and combine into other chemicals, which have different energy states. Right? Okay. So if the oil was burned, there's no oil left to burn. That's kind of how it works, right? That's logical? Yep. Okay. Is God logical? No. So just because we burned the oil yesterday means there's no oil here today to burn? If God is not logical, then just because the oil yesterday was burned, does that mean the oil that was burned yesterday does not exist now to burn? I'll say the other way around. Is it logical that if you burn the oil yesterday, that oil that burned yesterday is not available to burn today? Yes. Okay, if God is not logical, is it necessarily the case that just because you burned the oil yesterday, it means the oil is no longer here today to burn? Not necessarily the case, because God doesn't have to follow logic, right? Mm -hmm. So could it be that on day one, they burned all the oil in a perfectly natural, normal way, and despite that, that same oil, which you already burned and no longer exists, still existed in order to burn on the second day? As long as God is not bound by any logic and reason? So you're saying just like change the rules of the game? Which rules? Not, not halacha, because God would never no, change halacha, that right? We, that's the whole premise here. The, the rule that oil will disappear if you... If you burn it. Yeah. yeah. Just because it's burned doesn't mean it can't be here anymore. Now, does that make any sense? Because isn't burning meaning destroying it? But, I mean, we already have the Holy Holy, so like, you know, what's it, what's it, one more suspension of logic. So, 
Now, what if the Jews had not tried to do the mitzvah in the best possible way? Burning the oil. What if they had not burned the oil? What if they found the juggle and they're like, you know what, let's compromise. Let's only put an eighth of the oil in and hope that God does a miracle for us. Then what would have happened? There wouldn't have been a miracle. There wouldn't have been a miracle. Why? Because God did the miracle in order so that they should do the mitzvah properly, right? And what's the mitzvah? The mitzvah is to burn the oil that was produced by crushing olives, by filling up the menorah, and then burning it so it turns into flame, and the oil disappears. And if you, God's like, if you do all of that, I will make sure that the oil that burned is still there tomorrow to use. And then you say, but that doesn't make any sense. And God's like, correct, that does not make any sense. Right, we just had a war with the Greeks. We've already established, I don't have to make sense. So like, yes. So to put this in slightly other terms, if today is the first day of Hanukkah, back in the original Hanukkah, and you were, the oil that's burning is just burning normally, regular, right? And so as far as you're concerned, tomorrow, on day two, will there be any oil to burn? No. But when you get to tomorrow... The second, so now pretend, to the, now pretend it's the second day of Hanukkah. Do you have the oil? No. Logically, no, but in fact, do you have the oil? Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have the oil today, then what does that mean? Yesterday you didn't? You didn't burn it, because if you burned it, it wouldn't be here, right? So did, it, did you burn it yesterday? Did you not burn it yesterday? Can God make a number which is odd and even? Can something be there and not be there? Does God have to, everything has to be logically consistent? So it turns out that the miracle is that in each and every day, the oil both burned and it burned, and that's the fulfillment of the mitzvah. And because they fulfilled the mitzvah with the burning oil, that's why it didn't burn so that the oil would be available for the next day. So every single day of these eight days, there was the juxtaposition of two logical opposites, the oil burning and the oil not burning. Does that make any sense? No. Good. I'm glad. By the way, usually in this class, I try to make sure that things make sense. What am I trying to do? Make sure that it's clear that it doesn't make sense. It's very precise that it doesn't make sense. Right? We're going to be very exacting that this makes no sense. But the problem with this is that now you can just use logical inconsistency to like excuse anything. You can. You can. <laughs> so like now every time you have a question it's like well Hashem doesn't make sense correct <laughs> what's the problem but like what's the whole point of like pursuit of understanding who says there's a point <laughs> so we can all go home I'm gonna do that in five minutes <laughs> I feel like you have a question, but you, all you're doing is making statements. Say, I haven't heard the question yet. I don't know what my question is. Why would Hashem make sense of people who need to understand things that he never makes sense? Why does Hashem give us desires to sin if we're not supposed to sin? I mean, <laughs> I guess it makes life more interesting. I don't is there know. a point of pursuit of understanding? Oh, yeah, that's a mitzvah in the Torah. <laughs> See, it's like, why what's that, what's that, what's that? There's a mitzvah in the Torah to what? Understand. understand what? Torah. Torah, mitzvahs, maybe to whatever degree possible, Hashem. In other words, remember how we got into this whole thing was we weren't willing to compromise on which rules? Halacha. The rules of the Torah, right? 
So it turns out that, yeah, Hashem is not bound by logic, but he is bound by halacha, the Torah. So if you're saying, well, anything goes, yeah, anything goes, as long as the anything is within the framework of yeah. So if Hashem is like, okay, on the one hand, I could, you know, break the rules of logic, and on the other hand, we could break the rules of the Torah, which one is God going to be willing to suspend there? Logic. And so, what's the kind of message of Hanukkah then? It's not logical. But even if it's not logical, we're still not going to compromise, which is kind of the whole theme of the Hanukkah story, right? Does this now allow you to just do whatever you want, whenever you want, say it all doesn't have to make any sense? No, it's putting, it's saying that things making sense is not in and of itself significant, significant in as much as Hashem gives it its place, the place that the Torah gives it. And that's really the big difference between that and the Greek culture. The Greek culture had no problem with religion and spirituality and theology and all this kind of stuff as long as... It's logical. It makes sense. Right. That's like the... That's like what? It's all well it's and good. Contradictory, it's like almost like a contradictory statement in and of itself. Correct. <laughs> it's so much easier to talk about how God transcends logic before you think about what that means. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Well, Hanukkah is the time to think about what that means. <laughs> it's also a lot more fun. It's also a lot more fun to be anti the Hellenists and anti Greek culture when you don't think about what that means either. <laughs> So, anyway, I just want to point out that this class is not intellectually difficult. This class is not intellectually difficult. Do you know why? Because it's not intellectual. There's nothing. There's nothing intellectual about it. Now, it is definitely psychologically difficult. Do you know why? Because our psyches, our psyches are very strongly biased to try and be logical and rational about things. And when you try to say, well, maybe the rationality needs to be circumscribed, then we have a hard time dealing with that. It, was, it feels difficult. It's very difficult. This is a class that's extremely difficult. But the difficulty is not it's hard to understand. It's hard to come to terms with the fact that understanding is not really that foundational. Then why would you wire us that way? Either because one of the mitzvahs is we should understand certain things, that's why we have Torah, or B, I mean, we're also wired to sin, and then there's a whole idea of serving God by transcending your natural instincts, right? So the answer is both. There's some elements where we serve Hashem by understanding. There's some ways we serve Hashem by freeing ourselves of understanding. Now, this is, very, this is extremely, extremely difficult because it's not, it's not that, oh, anything flies, reason out's out the window, it's all an illusion. What we're saying is, no, Hashem really did create reason. Right, he did, and we should use our reason within the confines of the Torah. But when the confines of the Torah don't work with the reason, the rationality, then we have to let go of that, and that's kind of what we see in this miracle. And so it's actually quite a challenge. What comes first? What's most primary? What's most fundamental? My commitment to Hashem and to His Torah, His commitment to me, or? The fact that we can make sense of things, the fact that we can rationalize things, the fact that we can figure out how it all fits together. That's not an intellectually difficult thing to understand. It's just psychologically very hard to grapple with. And we have a holiday to help give us the strength and to fortify ourselves, right? And that's part of the reason why Hanukkah, you just look at the candles. You don't just actually like 
to sit silently and look at the candle because some things can't really be explained. More talking, more words doesn't really help. You just kind of have to have that sense of that illumination, a sense that this is the way it is. And you have to eat donuts because, you know, we're Jews. We eat things. That's, that's how we observe our religion. Even fast days, right? We have to have like big fancy meals before and afterwards. So, so that, was the, that was the class on Hanukkah. Tomorrow we'll do a different class on Hanukkah. What was the easy option? What? Maybe we'll do it tomorrow. Part of life is learning to live without um, knowing that you missed out on certain things.